So that's awesome. Well, here we are in November. Heroes of the Faith is the theme for November. I'm talking about different heroes in the Bible. What I love about this theme is it, it highlights two things for me. It highlights the fact that God can use anyone because the people we pin up as heroes are all dysfunctional people who God chose to use. Anyone glad about that? Right? So it kind of gives me hope because often, and I think it's just actually human nature, we can look at someone else and go, oh, well, they're awesome and that's awesome for them to do, but not me because A, B, C, and D. We always excuse ourselves, but I want you to know that none of us have an excuse when we look at the heroes of the Bible because they were all quite dysfunctional and they messed up from time to time. And God still used them and now we call them heroes which is awesome. The other thing that it shows me, though, is the heart of God towards people. The fact that they did make mistakes and God continued to cover them and continued to extend grace to them. So it shows me, like, God can use me and God will use me. Like, the heart of God towards humanity is just awesome. And so here we are. uh, This morning, I want to talk to you about a woman in the Old Testament named Rahab, If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to the book of Joshua. Um, If you don't have a Bible, just look on with a Christian next to you and they'll help you out. Uh, Kidding, kidding. (laughs) Before we get there, I want to give you some background about this story. Many of you know that I have a mild obsession with the Israelites, the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament because they actually show me what not to do, okay? Anyone want some tips on what not to do? All right, you don't have to learn by your own mistakes. Okay, for someone here, that's all you needed to hear. That's all you need to hear this morning. You don't need to make your own mistakes. You can learn from other people's mistakes, all right? Save yourself a whole lot of time and pain and misfortune. And so for me, that's the story of the Israelites because they're so stupid, I'm like, wow. And when I read it, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. I'm going, Carolina, that's kind of what you do from time to time. And so for me, I'm like, okay, I just need to learn from these guys. And so the story of the Israelites is basically this. God chose a guy named Abraham. He said, you're going to be a father of many nations, and I'm going to favor you and your descendants. Just because. Not because you're anything special, but just because I choose you. And so they became what's called, we know as the Israelites. And so they, at this point where we're going to pick up the story in Joshua, have just come out of slavery and they had been in slavery for 400 years. That's a long time. I I personally can't really get my head around that. The generations in slavery in Egypt and they were crying out to God and God heard their prayer and sent a deliverer named Moses and Moses conducted miracles to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Now, you have to understand, this was the whole entire workforce of Egypt were the Hebrews, the Israelites. There were uh, millions of them. And so that was the Egyptian workforce. So to convince Pharaoh to release his whole workforce is a big deal. And so God conducts these miracles in the forms of plagues to convince Pharaoh to let them go. Eventually, he lets them go after a few, you know, trials. And so they're now in the desert. God moves them out of slavery 
and he has reminded them of the promise that he spoke to their forefather, Abraham, that they're going to live in a prosperous land of their own. And so they've come from captivity and they have to go to Canaan, the promised land. Say promised land. And so there's this time in the middle in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. Now the distance between Egypt and Canaan is only an 11-day journey. It's an 11-day journey, but they take 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years to do an 11-day journey. This is where I learned my lessons because I realized doubt and fear and complaining and a bad attitude will keep me out of my promise. That actually a bad attitude is the enemy of my destiny. Fear is the enemy of my destiny. Grumbling is the enemy of my destiny. And what should only take 11 days took 40 years and actually meant a whole generation didn't even get there. Some died not even getting there. And so they're in the wilderness, and even in the wilderness, God is so good, and they see the miraculous hand of God all through the wilderness. He, can you just imagine if this was your everyday experience, right? I mean, I would so love to see the presence of God. They did. Every day, he went before them and led them as a pillar of cloud, a cloud. And then at night, he was a pillar of fire. They saw the physical presence of God on the daily And then they're hungry, and so God sends manna from heaven, a bread-like substance from heaven. You know, amazing miracles. Then they decided that wasn't good enough, and so they started complaining that they wanted meat. So God's like, sure. So he sent quail. Like he sends all these miraculous things. Then they're complaining because they don't have enough water. So um, Moses strikes a rock, and water comes out of the rock. Like the miraculous hand of God constantly around their lives. You would think... You would think that, that would, they would be the most faith-filled people in all the land, but they weren't. They weren't. And, and I just want to say, church, don't always chase the miraculous because it isn't necessarily going to convince you. Your convincing has to happen deep on the inside than anything external. It comes out of a revelation in the presence of God. That's where it comes from, not from the handouts in the miraculous. And I've seen many, many people receive a miracle from God and then walk away. Like, what is that? What is that? Because the miraculous won't change your life. The Spirit of God will change your life. The Spirit of God will change your life. And so so basically, because of um, their attitude, what happens is Moses brings them up to the promised land, to Canaan, and he sends in 12 spies And each of these men, these 12 men, is the head of each of the tribes of Israel. So 12 men go into Canaan to spy it out, to check it out, to bring back a report. And when they come back, 10 of them have a negative report. And they say, it is awesome. Like, everything God said is true. It's an amazing, prosperous place, except it's filled with giants and we'll never be able to subdue it. So they fill the nation with fear. There are two out of the 12 who bring a faith-filled report, and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, there are giants, you're right, but, but God said it's ours, and God has given it to us already because he's promised it for generations, and don't you remember all the signs and wonders and how powerfully, we can do this, we can do this, except millions of people side with the negative report, and they're filled with fear, and they reject the report of these two guys named Joshua and Caleb. 
Joshua and Caleb are the only ones out of the 12 who say we can do this. And because of the negative report, we see a whole generation of people stay out of the promises of God. And so for 40 years, they wander, wander around the wilderness. And 40 years later, that whole generation that came out of Egypt and saw the miraculous hand of God dies. They die in the wilderness, including Moses, never entering the promised land. And so now we have new leaders over Israel and a whole new generation in Israel who were born in the wilderness. And I'll give you one guess as to who the leaders are. Anyone tell me, who are the leaders now of Israel? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else dies except the two men who had faith. And they're now the leaders of Israel. And so they've come up to the promised land. And now the entry point into Canaan was a city named Jericho. Joshua and Caleb have seen this place before. They saw this 40 years ago. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We should have taken this 40 years ago. But this time, like, this is happening. So they bring all the people up to the... um, Jordan River, just outside Jericho. So you go Jordan River, Jericho, Canaan. And so millions of Israelites are camped on this side of the Jordan River. And, and they're looking at Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. It was a city with a huge wall around it. And there was only one way in and out. One gate in and out of Jericho. And so the city was heavily fortified, heavily armed. And they're standing at the border of this city that they should have taken 40 years ago. And Jericho is protected by this huge wall. They say that it was so big that people actually lived inside it. It was like an apartment complex that surrounded the city. And it was so wide that they would run chariots around the top of it. And there are people living in the wall. And so it was basically impenetrable. You can't take this city down. And so they're standing there and Joshua sends in two spies. And as I was thinking about this this morning, I just, it never hit me before, but I was just praying and finishing my prep this morning. And I realized, you know, maybe Joshua was like, Moses was just being too diplomatic. Like blow the idea with the 12. I'm sending two in. Just sending two in. And I thought to myself, you know what? Not everyone deserves a voice. Just because you hold a position or a title doesn't necessarily qualify you for a voice. And I reckon Joshua was like, find me the two most faith-filled guys in all of Israel. I don't care who they are. I don't care about position. I don't care about stature. Find me someone who's actually going to tell me what this looks like in God. And I'll send them in. And so he sends two spies in to check it out. And it brings us up to the story here in Joshua. And these two spies go in. The other thing you have to understand about Jericho is that it was completely ungodly. They worshipped all other gods. It was actually depraved. It was morally corrupt and backwards and vile to the things of God. And so here you have these two men godly men going into this city to spy it out. The other thing you need to know is that all the nations of the world, or the region at least, had heard about this God of Israel. And they'd heard about the miracles. 
They'd heard about his protection. Like this God would wipe out kings and nations before his people. Like so everyone knew of Israel and their God. And suddenly they're outside Jericho. All of Jericho is well aware who's camping on the other side of the Jordan. And they also would have been keeping an eye out for what was happening. So these two guys come up to Jericho, no doubt in disguise, to get in undetected. And so we come up to this passage in the Bible in Joshua chapter 2, where it says that they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. Now let me tell you about Rahab. So in those days, children were gifted to kings as sex slaves so that the families would have tax exemptions and favor and whatever else. Rahab was one of these. So the, the king has this, um, can't remember, can't think of the word right now. Um, what's the word? Harem. A harem of, of prostitutes or um, just sex slaves. And basically by the time he's done with them, they're moved on and thrown onto proverbial human trash heap. And um, she was able to, Um, conduct a lucrative business, let's just say, outside of the wall of Jericho. She lived in the wall of Jericho and conducted herself a prostitution business. So you can imagine she's got prime position in the wall. She's looking out. She solicits her business from the window and she becomes an informant to the king. So she's wealthy. She's an informant, but this is her life. This is her lot in life because of the way she'd been you know, her past, she's basically forfeited the right to marriage and family and all that sort of thing. And just this was her lot in life. And so here we have these two godly men. And it says, they find themselves in the house of a harlot named Rahab. At this point, I'm going, what did a prostitute have to yell out to get their attention? Don't you? I'm just sometimes like, God, you left out a lot of really interesting detail. I want to know how she got their attention. The other thing I want to know is how did she pick them? How did she know who to call out? If they're in disguise, how did she identify them? The amazing thing about Rahab is that she came to this place in her life where she thought, you know what, every other man and every other God has exploited me. But I'm hearing about this God who actually protects his people and loves his people, and provides for his people. And she has this crazy idea. I wonder if he'd include me. I wonder if he'd allow me to be a part of that nation. And so the reports come in that they're on the other side of the Jordan, and she sets her heart on finding a way to be grafted in among them. Either she's really bold or completely ignorant But for some reason, something in her shifts and goes, I want to be counted among them. And so the spies are looking for a way in. She's looking for a way out. And it's a perfect match. And so one afternoon, she sees them coming to the gate. I don't know how she knew it was them. I don't know how she got them up into her house. But they're there. And then somehow the guards get suspicious. And so they come to her house to see if they're there, these spies. But she hides them in her ceiling Um, tells the guards a bogus story, sends them on a wild goose chase, and basically that proves to us that she was a trusted informant to the king. The fact that they were like, oh, sure, we're not going to search your house. We'll just, you know, 
so she moves them on and comes back to the spies. In the meantime, I'm trying to imagine what the spies are thinking. Like they're lying in the ceiling of a prostitute and the guards are in the, in the house and they're going, how did we get here? What on earth is going on? And so Joshua chapter 2, I'd love to read it with you, starting in verse 8. Now before they lay down in the ceiling, she came up to them on the roof and said to the, t- said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land that terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings who came against you. Verse 11, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you kindness, that you will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. None, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. So they make this agreement and she lets them out the window on a scarlet cord. I love the imagery of the Bible, the scarlet cord that they slip down, the sign of salvation coming to someone's house. And, it's, and so the title of my message this morning is The Thread of Redemption. She gives them instructions on how to avoid their chases and sends them on their way. She redirects the guards, they go in another direction, and then these two spies bring a favorable report to Joshua. They're like, Joshua, it's awesome. Everyone is petrified that God's going to give us this city. And so some of us may know the story where God gives Joshua the most ludicrous plan and, you know, like, how are we going to take down a fortified city? Well, here's the plan. March around the city for six days in complete silence. On the seventh day, just shout and the walls will fall down. Right. Great plan. Foolproof. Anyone else ever had an experience like that in God? God, are you crazy? (laughs) Yes. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And he's a miracle working God. And that's what faith is all about. And so they do that. They march around the city. (laughs) They march around the city for six days in silence. And I love the thought that God had to keep their mouths shut. Just shut up and do what I told you to do. In silence. And then on the seventh day, shout praise, shout worship, shout my name, shout, and the walls are going to fall down. And they did. And the walls fall down. And so we read in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22, and Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, brothers and sisters, and all that she had, and brought, them, brought out all her relatives and left them outside. Say outside. outside. It's important for later. 
outside the camp of Israel, but they burned the city to the ground with fire. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers that Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The thread of redemption. What can we learn from this amazing hero? Well, my first point is this, is that we can redeem the past. We can redeem the past. So we can't be certain about the relational dynamic between Rahab and her family because that's not included in Scripture. But scholars and study tells us what I shared with you earlier, that often these women in those cities were gifted by their families to men of influence. And here we find this woman who has paid the price with her whole life for the greater good of the family. She has been forcefully put into a lifestyle which denies her blessing, integrity, dignity, character. She's been forced into a depraved and degraded life by the people who should have loved her and protected her. And so we see this painful thing happen in her life, but her response here is redeeming the time. Her response is, hey God, I don't want to be the only one counted among your people. Will you also make a way for my family? We can read over this and not join the dots. Her family were the ones who hurt her. Her family were the ones who denied her. Sometimes it's the ones we're closest to who hurt us the most. And here we find her making a way for exactly those people. This takes a revelation and it takes maturity. And I'm not saying... You know, it takes wisdom because we don't need to reestablish relationship with everybody who's abused us. But can we come to a place where we're bigger than the pain? Can we come to a place where we're bigger than the hurt, than the memory, where that no longer binds us up and restricts us, when we're no longer seeking an eye for an eye and a tooth for, the, for a tooth, we're the bigger person. We're the bigger person. And so she makes this way. I want to tell you that nothing is ever lost in God. Nothing is ever a loss in God. It's never too late unless you say so. You're never over or a victim unless you say so. Nothing is ever a loss in God. Romans 8.28 says, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and according to his purposes. So we may have come from a story that is hurting and broken and maybe that story was self-inflicted, maybe it was inflicted on us, but I want to challenge us, do we believe that God is a God who redeems the time? Do we believe that he's a God who buys back what was stolen from us? And can we move from victor victim to victor? Can we move from wanting a handout and wanting justification to a place where I'm going to be the bigger person? I'm healed enough to help. T.D. Jakes puts it this way, giving back is a way of announcing to yourself that you're healed enough to help. 
It's an important declaration of independence and a vital sign of recovery. And in God, that's who we can become. In God, we can rise above the pain. I want to tell you, life is not fair, but it's full of opportunities to rise up. It's full of opportunities to rise up. And so it's a revelation that overshadows pain and shame and excuse. It's an extreme maturity. It's an extreme revelation. And it's an extreme responsibility. I'm standing in the gap now. I'm rising up and I'm standing in the gap. It's a powerful thing. I want to ask you this morning, are you healed enough to help? Can you move past your pain? And what will it take for us to rise up and be a bigger person? So the first thing I learned from Rahab is that we can redeem the time. And I've definitely seen that in my own life. God is a God who redeems. He redeems. And it's so beautiful. And it's something we could never do for ourselves. He's an amazing God. The second thing is that we need to seize the present. She sees the present. And so we have to live lives full of passion and conviction and pursuit. The opportunity of a lifetime only lasts the lifetime of the opportunity. The opportunity of a lifetime only lasts the lifetime of the opportunity. And so you know what? Life's uncertain. So eat dessert first. (laughs) Just seize the opportunities as they present themselves. Seize them. Don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. Don't put it off for tomorrow. If you want to read an awesome book about this, The Last Arrow by Erwin McManus will kick you in the pants like you don't expect about doing every day the way that you should do it and not leaving for tomorrow what should be done today or what even could be done today. Just do it now. Don't waste anything. Don't hold anything in reserves. Give everything and seize every opportunity in every moment. But what this requires is that we're alert, that we're discerning, and that we're responsive. Alert and discerning and responsive. Former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, said this, I hate to see complacency prevail in our lives when it's so directly contrary to the teaching of Christ. Complacency is the enemy of your destiny. Complacency is the enemy of you getting to your promise. She'll be right, mate, is killing Australian destiny. She won't be right, mate. Clearly, she's not right, mate. (laughs) Complacency is the enemy of destiny. It's the enemy of the promise of God. We need to be full of passion and conviction and pursuit, and we need to be discerning and alert and sober-minded. One of my favorite scriptures is in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood around the world. But may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory by Christ, 
after you have suffered for a while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. But you need to be sober-minded. You need to see your opportunities, seize your opportunities, and run with perseverance and run with conviction every day. Every day. And that's actually a choice. That's actually a choice. Some people you may look at and go, they're so motivated. Most people choose to be that way. They choose to be that way. We have to be sober-minded. And, and just as I was preparing, I felt like God shared this little thing with me, this little nugget about this whole story, about seizing the opportunity and knowing what to do when the threat comes knocking on the door. Here we have Rahab, and she's hiding the presence of God. I felt like God saying to me, you know, when the knock comes at the door, when the circumstance tries to steal your faith, when the person persecutes you, when everything is opposed and knocking at the door, have you hidden me away in the depths of your house? She hid the presence of God in the depths of her house. And there it was, tucked away as she resisted the enemy because she knew it was on the inside. And so those moments of prayer, you alone with God. Those moments of worship, you alone with God. Those moments when you're studying your Bible, not just reading your Bible, studying your Bible, seeking to understand, seeking that the Spirit would reveal some life-giving truth to you. That's what you have tucked in the ceiling when the world comes knocking on the door. It's those moments that allow us to resist the enemy, to push him back, and ensures that you can seize the opportunity when it presents itself. So we seize the presence, the present. And then the last point is that we carve into the future. We carve into the future. And as I read the heroes, often this is the pattern I see, and I don't know whether it's just my bent, but I often see past, present, future, past, present, future, past, present, future. There's just this pattern of God is a God of all time. And he works that through all of our lives. He redeems the past. He does miraculous in the present. And then he carves into the future. All of them, there's this pattern of God's just all encompassing. And so we, we carve into the future. In verse 25 of chapter 6, Joshua spared Rahab the harlot. And so she dwells in Israel to the, this day because she hid the messengers. Church, will you come with me this morning? Did you know that Rahab not only lived in Israel for the rest of her life, she's actually also part of the lineage of Jesus Christ? I don't know, maybe I'm slow, and, and when I re- realized this, this was like earth-shattering for me. Maybe you all knew something I didn't know. Like, please just entertain me for a while if you already knew this. A harlot from an ungodly nation is used by God to bring salvation to you and me. I mean, if you thought you had an excuse, I'm sorry today to take that away from you. God used the most unlikely candidates to usher in Jesus. 
Matthew tells us in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that Rahab is the grandmother, a great-grandmother of David, King David, and David was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He used the most unlikely people. Jesus can relate to and move through anybody, anybody, and make a way for future generations. He came through a lineage that included both princes and prostitutes. God himself was both the king and the illegitimate child of a teenage girl. There is no one he can't relate to and no one he can't use and love and move through. But my point is that we make a way into the future. Some say, and the scripture said it, that she dwelt outside the camp. And maybe that was the Israelites' way of going, we don't know what to do with this like unclean, defiled person. Like God spared her, but she can live over there. And so she lived outside the camp. What I love is just her humility and her desperation to go, that's fine with me. I'm just gonna be as close to God as I possibly can be. And so she dwelt outside the camp. But how did she become in the lineage of Jesus, right? Well, an Israelite man took her as his wife. And it makes me wonder, what made her so much more attractive than all the good girls in Israel? Maybe it was her passion. Maybe it was her conviction. And you join the dots, it was actually one of the spies. Saw just this tenacity. This count me in. I'm not backing down. I refuse. I remember feeling like that. I remember realizing there's a God in heaven who wants to cover all my disgrace, breathing that oxygen for the first time, that hope for the first time and going, you know what? I don't care how inappropriate my presence might be, but I'm making myself boldly into the presence of God. I'm coming and no one's going to stop me. And then watching God favor my life because I don't deserve the favor that I walk in. just like Rahab didn't deserve it, but she was passionate enough to go after it with both hands. She was passionate enough to see God for the love that He truly is and go, I want that and I want to be with you and I want to walk with you and I I don't care about anything else. That's all I want. I know what that feels like. (laughs) Jesus relates to all of us and it seems that no matter who you are or no matter what your background is, the only prerequisite for Him using you is an abandonment to His grace and a passionate pursuit of who He is. He can do anything with a person like that. Winston Churchill said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. Really? Really? Does your life and my life look like that? Writing history? Changing the tides? We need to have extreme vision, big picture thinking. I want to ask you, do you have a 100-year vision? Or are you just looking forward to payday this week? A big vision. If your vision only sees you, then it's not a kingdom vision. Proverbs 13 verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for him. The eternal reward of turning up, 
the eternal reward of pursuit, the eternal reward of a stoic nature that just digs your heels in and chases after God. Do you know, many of us understand the idea of salvation and that's what the church can often teach is come to Jesus and you'll be saved eternally. Did you know there's also more than that? There are eternal rewards based on how we conduct our lives beyond that point. Do you know you get crowns in heaven depending on how you conduct your life on this earth? Do you realize you get eternal rewards on the other side of eternity based on how you live your life? Do you realize that your life counts for eternity? That you can make an eternal investment today for all of eternity? It's a powerful concept when we understand just how much our lives count for. Just how much God wants to move through us, not just for us, not even just for our children, but for future generations and into eternity. There are future rewards, eternal rewards. Revelation 22.11 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Eternal rewards for doing the hard things eternal rewards for serving, eternal rewards for being persecuted, eternal rewards for turning up and doing the will of God. Don't just get into heaven by the skin of your teeth. There are rewards waiting for you. And it all depends on according to His work. On this side, storing up riches, you know, when, um, when Sam's dad was a young man, so my father-in-law, when he was a young man, he, he grew up in a farming household on a dairy farm, and he became a Christian. He was saved radically, and his stepfather was quite opposed to this new way of life, and he took Steve out into the fields one day, and he basically... have you. This may remind you of another account in the scripture. He said, see all this? I'll give this to you if you renounce your faith. It's whole property. And Steve said, I can't do that. And so he was written out of the will for that property. I am so glad. I'm so glad about that. Because his eternal reward is far greater than a bunch of cows in some green fields. Right? what he laid up for his children's children. And we may never be able to measure it this side of eternity, but it's a significant decision where he realized my life counts for more than this, more than this week's paycheck, more than this field. My life is gonna count for something more. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? God's promises are always bigger than ourselves. It's always bigger than the right now. And from the life of Rahab, that's what I receive. I receive that God will use anyone, anyone who gets it, who gets it. God, I want to get it. I want to get it and run with it. I want to push away intimidation and convenience. I want to be counted among your people and I want to make a way for future generations into the eternity 
that you intend. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you just lift our eyes. Would you stand, keep your eyes shut, but would you just stand with me this morning? Just keep your eyes closed and raise your hands this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that you'd show us some of you are seeing something for the first time. You're like, is that in my imagination? No, we're in the presence of God and we've asked the Holy Spirit to speak to us. He's speaking. It's okay to make bargains with God. I do it all the time. She invited those spies in and she's like, if I look after you, will you? do this. God's okay with that. I reckon he'd prefer that than someone who sits on their hands and does nothing and asks for nothing. Just ask him. God, if you're real, created to make an impact for good and that it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do it. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God. I want to offer you an invitation to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. I remember being in a room like this and hearing a message about God and and being offered an invitation to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life and I responded. And I still remember that day like it was yesterday. It was the best decision I've ever made. And I have made mistakes since then, but I've come back to God and He's covered me and restored me. I just want to offer you that invitation to make Him the Lord and Savior of your life. And if that's you, I'd love for you just to raise your hand as I look across, no one else is looking. I'm going to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. Give me a wave. See your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Holy Spirit. Anyone else? Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that you seek us out. You love us. You make a way for us. You send your spirit and make a way for us. Father, I thank you that you've made a way this morning. I thank you for the hearts that have responded, for the hands that I've seen, but maybe there were some that responded in their hearts and they're responding right now. Lord, you see hearts. I only see hands. You see hearts. And I thank you, Lord God, that you come in like a flood. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister. Father, I thank you that in this moment we are made 
white as snow, the old is gone, the new has come, that your spirit has baptized us into Jesus in this moment, that we relate with Jesus, Lord God, in this moment. Father, I thank you that our sins are forgiven. Lord, I thank you that a repentant heart makes all things new in you. And so this morning, Lord God, I thank you for a future and a destiny that is unrivaled to anything the world can offer. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that these precious lives, Lord God, would move fully into what you have for them. I pray for a hedge of protection around them. I pray for a community of believers around them. Father, and I pray for a resolute decision from this moment on to be counted by you, to be seen and included by you. Father God, to walk into the fullness of what you have, regardless of what lies behind. I pray for bold decisions to be made from this moment onwards. In Jesus' mighty name, thank you, God. of us, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would stretch our believing. Stretch us, God. Lord, we're asking, we're seeking. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to move fully into you. We want to be responsive to you. We want to walk in the way you want us to walk. We want our lives to be poured out. We want to meet our potential. We want to walk fully into eternity, knowing we've given what we were intended to give in to give, not holding anything back with nothing in reserves, God. We want to walk in the way that you intend for us. And I pray that you'd stretch our thinking so we can do that. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen, 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 amen. Awesome. We're going to go out praising God. Church, I pray that you find yourself in the presence of God. Pray that through this week. And um, we'll see you back tonight or next Sunday. Love you heaps.